This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. What happens when a culture embraces a religion of humanity rather than Christianity? Well, we've often discussed the influences of the Enlightenment or postmodernism on our society, but what is to be understood about this humanitarianism that has increasingly taken hold and has begun to corrupt Christianity itself with visions of radical political change and social justice? We're going to talk about this today with Professor Daniel Mahoney. He holds the Augustan Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College. He's executive editor of Perspectives on Political Science and book review editor of Society. And today we will be discussing his book called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. And it's great to have you here, Professor Mahoney. How are you? I'm great. Delighted to be on the program. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Now, I guess we begin with a definition of humanitarianism for those who might say, I'm not really sure what that would be. How do you define it? You know, I put, uh, we ultimately put religion of humanity, which is a phrase from August Comte from the 19th century, rather than humanitarianism, because I didn't want to be misunderstood. And I, as I recently put in an interview, I'm not critiquing the Doctors Without Borders or philanthropic work, or certainly the, uh, the, the tasks of the Good Samaritan were essential to all, you know, all Christians and men of goodwill. But by humanitarianism, I really mean an approach to society that emphasizes this worldly change, Hmm. and sometimes of a very radical and utopian character, and that completely forgets, or more or less forgets, the transcendent dimensions of Christian and moral witness. So humanitarians often emphasize uh, radical social change instead of personal virtue, moral virtue, um, deference to God's will, that kind of thing, and often show a tremendous naivete about human nature, you know, uh, ignoring the sinful and imperfect uh, nature of man short of the consummation of God's kingdom, and often show a terrible indulgence toward left-wing totalitarian regimes. We all know of uh, certain religious types and all uh, Christian and Jewish communities who show an indulgence toward left-wing tyrannies from yes. Cuba to China to the Soviet Union in the old days. So um, so this religion of humanity, I argue, is actually a very self-conscious replacement for the Christian faith, but it more and more has infected or infiltrated Christian self-understanding. Oh, yes, I've noticed that very much so. So what would be the roots of this? Obviously, there are a lot of different subcategories, I would say, probably of the same impulse. But when you're talking about humanitarianism or the religion of humanity, you mentioned Compt, but what are the roots of humanitarianism? How far back would you go? Well, you know, I think Whitaker Chambers suggested in Witness, his great anti-communist memoir, that in some sense this temptation to make man the measure of all things goes back to the Garden of Eden. Yes. You know, it's a, yeah. a permanent human temptation. But I would say, you know, in your opening you mentioned, you know, discussions about social justice and enlightenment and 
radical currents of modernity. And I think there's been a tendency in Enlightenment thought, not all of it, but much of it, to, uh, you know, uh, toward what Alexander Solzhenitsyn calls anthropocentric humanism, making yeah. man the center of all things, right. and forgetting that the human person has to show deference to a higher order, you know, an order above the human will. And that's, uh, uh, you know, when we make man sovereign, uh, we, uh, we really invite uh, tyranny over human beings, because yes. yep. the very idea of limits and restraint is jettisoned. So, I would say, and then of course, I, in my book I talk about people like August Comte, who in the 19th century, these sort of pantheists and progressivists who really did, you know, openly say, we've got to replace revealed religion with a religion of humanity where man is the highest thing in the universe. So there, there are multiple sources. It's an old human temptation, but I think under conditions of modernity, there's always a tendency to radicalize what's legitimate in modern thought yeah. and take it to a terrible extreme. Right. Well, and, and we have the history of the 20th century, for example, those who are reigniting socialistic impulses. We can point back to the old Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall. We have all kinds of examples of the failed attempt to make communism this great new utopia for mankind. And a lot of Americans, I think, that I've talked to have said, I don't understand why people are going back to this failed philosophy. But would you equate socialism with humanitarianism or would you say there was two separate things? Well, I would say that socialism is one powerful modern reflection of humanitarianism. Not all secular humanitarians are socialists, but I think socialism, with its sort of inordinate emphasis on uh, radical societal change, its attraction to political utopianism, its tendency... You know, I think what socialists tend to do is they place an almost sacred value on imminent political change and forget that no political order, even the most legitimate or decent, is capable of satisfying, you know, the ultimate yearnings of human beings. So, yes, I think there's an intimate connection between socialism and humanitarianism. Right. Now, who would you say are the biggest purveyors of humanitarianism in our day, especially in the United States? Would there be some key figures that you would identify? Well, I don't know if I want to name names exactly, but I do see, you know, um, I'll mention both in the Catholic and Protestant communities. In the Catholic community for a long time, We've had a, a certain wing of the church, and partly represented by the present pontiff, that is too attracted to liberation theology and uh, to political radicalism, and uh, you know, and and really forgets, as I said before, the fallen nature of man right. and the need for um, you know a sober understanding of human nature. I think there are certain progressives in the um, in the liberal Protestant community and increasingly in the evangelical community who uh, just have this sort of reflexive understanding of social justice, which, uh, you know, to come back to our previous discussion, rather naively identifies justice with socialism or state centralization and has unreasonable expectations of the ability of uh, of radical political change to uh, somehow establish, if not a perfect human community, at least something that is more or less idyllic. So I think the, I think the temptation is widespread in the churches, and also there's an there's just an openly atheistic manifestation of uh, uh, humanitarianism with the new atheists, and often that takes the form, you know, you know, people like uh, uh, Dawkins and these others right. who are materialists of the first order, and they. Uh, they really um, t- 
turn science and, in, into scientism and, uh, you know, make claims for scientific understanding that goes way beyond what is reasonable. No right. Christian is opposed to scientific knowledge or scientific understanding, but when we make a idol of it, it can be very, you know, can become very destructive of uh, human dignity. Absolutely. So, uh, no, I think humanitarianism, in some sense, as the title of my book suggests, is the idol of the age. This, And my deepest concern is that our co-religionists more and more confuse the true message of the gospel and the moral law with uh, a counterfeit version that uh, really has lost sight of the uh, the transcendental dimensions of uh, biblical faith. Yeah, and you're so right about that because you see it, as you mentioned, from the Roman Catholic perspective. You see it in the you know the Catholic wing. You see it in liberal mainline Protestantism and in evangelical circles as well. And I think of late we've had a lot of evangelicals say, why is social justice becoming a thing in traditionally conservative evangelical circles? Well, I guess it's just the same idol of the age just seeping into different institutions. Yeah, you know, I think in the uh, somewhere in the opening of my book, I say, what does the word social add to the word justice? Hmm. Justice is a noble thing. It's an imperative of any free and decent society. But the the adjective social is very murky, and it seems to suggest the need for what I call doctrinary egalitarianism. You know, I think we have, as Christians and as men and women of goodwill, we have an obligation to the poor and to the least advantage, but to identify that naively and dogmatically with socialism or, you know, uh, uh, economic redistribution or some kind of imperative to a level society, I think it's a terrible mistake. But again, Absolutely. I come back to what, 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 what does the social act to social justice? I love that. You know what? Let's take a break. We'll come back. Professor Daniel Mahoney, his book is called The Idol of Our Age. We'll return right after this on Janet Mefford Today. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has plan for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. The cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. 
Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thanks for joining us. And it's great to have with us Professor Daniel Mahoney. And he is the author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He is also the Augustine Chair and Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College. You raised a really good question, I think, Professor, when you asked the question, what does the word social add to the word justice? And I think this is a really important point. I hadn't really thought about it like that. But certainly any Christian who holds to the Bible will understand the need for justice. We serve a just God and we are to, uh, you know, live out justice in our world and bring justice to people in our courts and all the rest. Why do you think they put social in front of justice? Do we know what the origin is there? Well, you know, it was actually used by a um, uh, Italian Jesuit priest in the 1840s named uh, Tagarelli De Zeglio, I think his name was, and Taparelli. Yeah, and it was initially used to simply remind us that there was a what the classics called a need for commutative justice, that there has to be, uh, you know, an element of fairness and equity and social arrangements. But I think in the course of the next hundred years, and certainly in the last 50 years, it's come more and more to mean that radical or absolute equality is a precondition of justice or a precondition even of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I think that's a terrible mistake. You know, there's a there's a, a Catholic cardinal uh, named uh, Sarah who grew up in Equatorial Guinea. People don't much know much about this, but it was a country that had a kind of a Pol Pot socialist regime in the 70s and 80s that killed uh, millions of uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And Cardinal Sarah always says, "Do not confuse the gospel with some imperative to absolute equality." Because, you know, that desire for an unreasonable equality can lead to terrible violence and coercion, as he experienced in West Africa under a Marxist-Leninist regime. And he, he even compares, you know, some Christians who are taken in by transgenderism. Yeah. Uh, it's done in the name of fairness or equality, but it really involves a fundamental denial that there's such a thing as human nature or God-given nature. Right. You know, we, we have, uh, we, we have uh, people, my students, for example, I teach at a Roman Catholic college, and half my students believe that we are absolutely free to choose our own gender. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is really appalling. It is. Uh, you know, I'll say to them, look, you know, there's much more truth in Genesis's claim that God made us male and female than there is in a transgender ideology that says there are 72 uh, human-created genders that we can freely choose at will. Wow. That's a huge number, though, of students who believe it, but it's across the board. I mean, they're all kind of going that way. Yeah. By the way, let me tell you another, just a kind of, it's a different subject, but it's a related phenomenon. I've done some work with a really wonderful organization out of Washington called the Victims of Communism Memorial Love Foundation. Love them. I love them. They're beautiful organization. They are. They're great. I do some speaking for them on college campuses, and uh, 
They do an annual poll of millennials about their attitudes about socialism and communism, and it is appalling the percentage of young people, for example, can't identify North Korea as a communist state. Mm. But also, in a recent poll they did, 30% of young people said George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, president from 2001 to 2009, killed more people than Joseph Stalin. Good grief. You know, oh. so what, you know, I, I ask myself from time to time, what's going on? And this, this, this is a start in college. This is beginning much earlier. They're not learning anything about the fundamentals of the 20th century or this totalitarian assault on, on liberty and human dignity. And uh, one, one wonders how so many young people, you know, mainly people of, I think, very goodwill, but they simply haven't been exposed to the fundamentals that are at the heart of, uh, you know, Western and Christian civilization. That's right. Oh, that's just appalling. And, and t- how in the world? I don't even know. I don't even know yeah, how to... No, ass- no, it's stunning. When I, when I tell, uh, uh, when I tell the group, you know, I give, when I speak and I mention this fact, people are actually stunned. Yes, but, yes. Uh, it, but it, because it, it literally is stunning. Yeah, it is. Did we miss some genocide during the Bush years? I, I mean, I don't remember hearing uh, anything about a genocide. No, no, no. Mm. It's, it's just hard. It's just hard to believe. But again, you know, I have a French friend, uh, um, Alan Bessonson, a very distinguished historian, also a Christian. He, uh, he, uh, he's a great scholar in Nazism and communism, and he, he always says, and he, he wrote a, a wonderful book available in English called The Century of Horrors from um, ISI Books, which um, I would recommend to everyone. But he points out Nazism has legitimately gotten its due as a monstrous genocidal and racist ideology, but communism hasn't gotten its due. Yeah, you know, just too many American citizens, too many politicians, too many journalists, too many professors, and too many of our co-religionists simply don't know the terrible totalitarian and genocidal record of uh, Marxist-Leninism in the 20th century. And I think mm-hmm. that's you know, that's why you know, as you and I both were suggesting that the, you know the victims of communism. Memorial Foundation does such good work because this education, I think, is central to sort of freeing us from these uh, totalitarian and humanitarian illusions. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely love them. Well, when you're talking about the underlying problem here, the religion of humanity that is the idol of our age, as your book title suggests, can you speak to the issue of how that subverts Christianity and some of the contrasts between this humanitarianism that has infected so many people's minds versus what Christianity teaches so far as, as you mentioned before, the transcendence of God, the sinfulness of man, and so forth? Sure. You know, there's a, there was a, a great German moral philosopher, a Roman Catholic named Robert Spayman, who just died last week. He was in his late 80s. And he said not too long ago that too many contemporary Christians get ahead of God's mercy. Hmm. And what he meant by that, of course, our God, the biblical God, is is a merciful God. But God cannot force our uh, adherence to His grace. You know, we, we remember the two th- the, the two men on the cross when Jesus was crucified. One repented, and Jesus famously said, you know, you, you, you shall be with me in paradise this day. Right. But the other did not. Right. You know, so the benignity of Christ was unable to work on somebody who was not repentant and not open to God's grace. So I think a lot of Christians today, they essentially believe in universal salvation. Mm. 
they believe that they confuse, as I argue in the book, mercy, um, which is a holy and great thing, with um, a kind of loose relativistic compassion. Hmm. And um, I think the danger in this is, um, you know, we forget one of the central um, imperatives at the heart of the Christian message and so central to the the gospel of Christ, which is repentance. You know, we have to open our souls to God's grace. And and we're we're simply, um, you know, when we confuse divine mercy with moral relativism, then I think we've succumbed to the religion of humanity. So that's that's something I think that has both theological significance, but we can also say see its importance on the moral and political uh, plane. I, you know, many people in the churches, uh, you know, Pope Francis yesterday, who concerns me, Pope Francis uh, said that, well, his great predecessors in the Catholic Church were all wrong uh, to say that capital punishment was legitimate because they were just influenced by uh, a legalistic criteria their uh, their time. And it's very hard to say that St. Paul and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and all the great Reformation philosophers and theologians, as well as the Catholic ones, were all completely wrong. And yeah. suddenly, you know, in 1985, <laughs> we have enlightenment. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, well, and it's interesting, too. One of the other things that you talk about in the book, which I think is so important for people to consider, and you mentioned it before, is this idea of social change is the goal and kind of goes over moral virtue. And that's, that's kind of a, a shift, I think, that I've seen in my lifetime where there seems to to be more discussion about maybe they don't call it the collective, but they like to use the word community. It's about the community and communitarianism and and the greater good and these kinds of terms I know are cropping up in evangelicalism all the time now. And and people's radars go off and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, of course we're a community, but we also understand not just as Christians but as Americans that the concept of the individual is also incredibly important. Is it not? I mean, this is all tied to our understanding of what reality is. I couldn't agree more. I think, for example, the the term the common good is of of ancient and uh, medieval lineage, and it's a wonderful term reminding us that we live in community, but it doesn't mean that... I think the great Christian insight is that we're persons created by God, and there's an irreducible individuality. This isn't, you know, selfish, atomistic individualism, as people sometimes say. This is a recognition that... The, the dignity of the created person always takes precedent over some coercive vision of community. So, yeah, I just think, um, you know, I just sort of thinking about some of the things we've been discussing today, that this deep theological and philosophical confusion that has infected the Christian communities, and, um, that you know, and, and there's no other way of putting it is that too many of our contemporaries simply don't acknowledge any difference between Christianity and this kind of dogmatic egalitarianism and social justice ideology. And um, and I think they get extremely defensive when we bring up these distinctions, because 
they have a tendency to think in a very Manichaean way. Either yeah. you're, they don't believe in moral virtue in the traditional sense, but they do have their category of virtue and vice, which is you're either on the side of progress or you're a reactionary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a new kind of religion. And, and I think sometimes my theory on this is they like the religious cover of being able to invoke Christianity. But in reality, when you start to break it down, you see they're radically different. People can read about it in The Idol of Our Age. Professor Daniel Mahoney with us. And just great to have you with us. Thank you so much, well, Professor. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Oh, God bless you. Thank you. It was great for me, too. And I appreciate your being with us. And we'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Effort today. Have our policymakers abandoned the American worker? Look around where we see stagnating wages, an opioid crisis, jobs moving overseas, declining life expectancy. You look at those things and it sure seems like our labor force is not what it should be. But why is that exactly? And what's the remedy for what ails working people in American culture? We're going to tackle that today with Oren Cass, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and author of the book, The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Oren, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, what is your take on the state of the American worker today? How good do we have it? How bad do we have it? <laughs> well, it, it depends on which worker you're talking about. There, there are some who have it great. But I, I think if you look at sort of the median, uh, you know, the person in the middle of the distribution or, or a little bit below that, um, who we would have called the working class historically, uh, they, they don't have it very good and, and they haven't for a while. Right. Right. So you have this situation, for example, where years ago you would have a guy, young guy, maybe not even college educated, being able to get a job in a factory and and able to support a family. Those days are kind of gone. We're a globalist society now in terms of business. And many people have talked about how the economy has changed. But what do you see as some of the bad policy decisions that have contributed to the state of the American worker, especially those who are really suffering in their in their labor right now? Well, I think what we've done for a long time, really, you know, going back about 50 years, is that we, we took this approach that said, as long as we're getting economic growth, uh, the, the so-called economic pie will keep getting bigger. And some people said automatically that will work for everybody. And other people said, well, it's not going to work for everybody, but the people who it doesn't work for, we can just tax and spend. We can redistribute from the winners to the losers. Right. Uh, and I don't think there was nearly enough focus on, okay, but, but what if you don't want a, a benefit or, or a check from the government? What if you want to be able to support yourself? And so in all of these different areas, you know, if you look at how we approached education policy, we pushed very hard toward this college for all model that says, you know, we're going to gear our system toward creating college graduates and lots of folks are going to fall out along the way and and we're not really going to have anything for them, but our college graduates are going to do really well and and drive our economy. Uh, And we did the same thing with 
uh, how we approach trade and immigration, which was to say, look, you know, more trade, more immigration, it's good for growth. It, it brings prices down. We can get more cheap stuff. And again, if, if, if it actually doesn't work at all for a lot of workers, that's okay. We can take care of them some other way. Uh, and then, of course, with our safety net, which we built very much on, on the premise that, you know, people who are struggling, people who don't have enough to get by on, uh, we can make that up for them with, with benefits. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the real problems with that is, is then that makes going and working relatively less attractive. And, and so we got to the point where the kind of package of benefits we might offer someone who doesn't work starts to look a lot like what they could earn if they did work. Right. And so all of those, all of those kinds of things, again, if all you care about is making sure everyone has enough to consume, that's a great plan, but it, it really it, it ignores and abandons people as workers. Well, it does. You know, you touched on a couple of things that I think are really significant. And one was this push to see more and more and more people going to college. What sort of effect has that had? Because there have been a lot of discussions I know about. We still need, obviously, people in the trades. We need people in jobs that don't necessarily necessitate a college education. And now we've seen the price of a college education go through the roof, which has made a lot more people take on extraordinary amounts of debt. How do you see that push to put, you know, more and more and more people into college as affecting the labor force? Well, I think we have to emphasize, you know, for people who are going to succeed in college, for whom it's a good pathway, college is great. I I don't think we should be against college. But we have to recognize that for the majority of people in this country, college still isn't a very good solution. You know, most people don't even earn a community college degree. Uh, and of those who, who even do end up earning a degree, often it takes them a long time. Often they accrue a lot of debt. Right. Often they end up with a job that, that didn't require a college degree anyway. And so what, what's really gone wrong is that we've said college is the only path. And, and starting in high school, we've turned our high schools into these kind of college prep academies. <laughs> and, and all of the emphasis at that stage goes to preparing people for college. Uh, and then we've taken all of our funding, all of our resources, and put it towards subsidizing college. So it's, it's, it's really quite backward, actually. We say, you know, for the folks who are likely to succeed in college, who have a good chance of kind of being the winners in the economy, uh, we've got literally hundreds of billions of dollars of support for you. Uh, and if you're someone who's not going to college or, you know, trying to, to finish high school and, and find your way into the labor force, we have no support for you. Right. Uh, so, so we shouldn't be surprised by, by the result that we've gotten, which is further and further skewing toward the college model, which doesn't work for a large share of people. And with it, a real shift in our culture that kind of says the college pathway is the only respected one uh, and that anyone who's not on the college pathway, there must be something wrong with them. And yeah. that just that just creates a vicious cycle, which then pushes even more people toward college. And, and we really have to get away from that and towards saying, look, people are going to be on a lot of different trajectories. Our economy needs a lot of different things. There are a lot of good good pathways into good jobs that are going to let you support yourself, support your family, contribute to your community. Uh, and let's find the one that's right for you. Right. Well, do you think the mindset behind this college for all mentality is really tied to the consumer angle, in other words, saying, you know, you got to make enough money to be able to live in this world and college is the best path toward making more money. Do you think it's that mindset that is really driving that that push? Yeah, you know, I think there's a little bit of just this idea that you have to make as much money as you can. 
Um, I, I think the other piece that's also tied to the consumer mindset is this idea that, um, you know, even the, the point of work of a job of a career is sort of, it's supposed to be this way that you kind of achieve self-actualization and find your passion and do what you love and, yeah. and that somehow your work and your career is supposed to be at, at the center of your life. And again, that's just, that's not reality for most people. You know, m- most people, as the saying goes, they, they work to live. They don't live to work. Mm. And a, the job is, is something you do to provide for your family. And it's fulfilling because it's the way you provide for your family. And, and we've sort of shifted away from that to this idea that if it's not, if it's not how you have your fun and the thing you love, then there must be something wrong with it. Right, right. Or that you everybody has some great passion, and if they just tap into that, they'll have this great job that goes along with their great passion. I mean, that's not realistic. No, and, and it's it's not even good advice. I no. Mean, not, only, not only is for most people their passion not what they're likely to be a, a productive worker doing, but it's not even how you, you know, some people love throwing their themselves and their energy and their passion into work, but a lot of people don't want even their work to be their passion. And, mm-hmm. and it's not always great to find yourself in a situation where you're beholden to your job because you care about it so much. Yes. Um, and so again, we've sort of, we've, we've defined this single model um, and, and it's exactly the model that sort of the you know the the folks I guess a lot of times we call them the elites. It's it's the model that that the people at at the top of politics and the culture and the economy that a lot of them have embraced and and have sort of established it as the standard. Uh, and it's just a, a not a good fit at all for what really a lot maybe even most people need to build good lives. Right. Well, why do you think policy keeps going in that direction then? Well, I, I think there are two reasons. I think one is a sort of a, a mistake made in good faith, which is that I think everybody really did believe in this idea of the economic pie and that consumption is what we wanted, and that uh, as long as we got the growth and we did the redistribution, then you know even if your own job couldn't support you, you your 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 living standards would still rise. And in fact, that's you know, some of the criticism that, that I receive for the arguments that I make is people say, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're obsessing about work, but people don't even like work. We should be looking at, you know, how much stuff they have, how, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how well they're doing. I mean, to, to be a little sarcastic about it, how big their TVs are. Oh. Uh, and, and I think there's, you know, in a sense, we've believed that is the path to happiness and, and we thought it would work and, and we were just wrong. Well, I'll tell you what, hang on just a moment. We're going to take a short break. Orrin Cass with us, The Once and Future Worker is his book, and we'll come back after this on Janet Meffer Today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more 
at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound. And every day, preborn is on the front lines competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. Planned Parenthood, who generated recently over $190 million in net revenue, violated the terms of the payroll protection plan by taking over $80 million of COVID relief funds. Meanwhile, Preborn has received no government funding and many of our center's revenue is down. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, just call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're with us and glad to be chatting with Orrin Cass, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Orrin, you were talking before the break about some of these major developments uh, pertaining to the abandonment of the American worker, one of which had to do with the economic pie, this idea that, you know, you're part of a bigger economy and so you're all, you know, kind of contributing to the GDP or whatnot. But I know you also talk about about the ascent of consumers and the priority that has been given to their interests at the expense of producers. Now, what is that all about? Well, I think you know the economic pie, like you mentioned, is, is exactly the right way to, to think about this, which is that when we talk about the idea of the economic pie and it getting bigger so that everybody can have a bigger slice, we're talking about consumption. We're talking about uh, you know, in, in the sense of the metaphor, everybody likes pie. So yeah. let's give everybody as big a slice of pie as we can. And and no one ever asks what, what is actually, I think, the more important question, which is, well, who's baking the pie? <laughs> you know, people people like high living standards. People enjoy consumption. But when you look at what's actually most important to their life satisfaction, to their own health, to their families, to their kids, to their communities, it's not living standards. It's not how much they get to consume. It's whether they have a, a role as a productive contributor. Right. Uh, and, and so you see that uh, in people's own mental health and their self-esteem. You know, you see that especially for men, um, having work is incredibly important to family formation and family stability. You see it's incredibly important to outcomes for kids. And so when we just take this view that says, as long as the economy is getting bigger and everybody can have more stuff, we should call that success. Hmm. We, we really miss what's most important in life and what's most important to a healthy society and ultimately what's even going to be most important for a strong economy. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. And I go back to something else that you mentioned earlier on, and that was the concept of self-sufficiency. And when you have more and more people on the dole, for example, you, you want to say, well, there should be some semblance of a safety net for people who truly need it, but then there can be abuses as well. Have we lost as a culture to some extent this idea that self-sufficiency is good in and of itself and that's a virtue that we ought to be pursuing more? 
Well, you know, I, I think we are losing it. I, I don't think we've lost it entirely, but I think what happens is that when you think about why self-sufficiency is important, why people find meaning in their work and providing for their family, a big piece of that is because it's something that we've defined as an obligation in our society. You know, people, um, it's incredibly important in people's lives to know what is expected of them, to see what obligations they are supposed to be meeting, and then to feel for themselves in the eyes of their families and in their, their communities that they, that they have met and fulfilled those obligations. And historically, self-sufficiency, supporting yourself and your family, has obviously been among those. But as we move further and further toward a model that says, well, you know, if you can't support yourself, we'll support you anyway. Right. Uh, and if you think of some of the proposals we have out there, for, for instance, what's called a basic income, which is literally, let's just send everybody a check every month yeah. so that nobody feels like they have to support themselves. Um, you know, not only will we will we kind of lose that economic push that I have to work to earn the money, but but we'll go further toward a, a very dangerous cultural shift toward saying, you know, self-sufficiency, if, if you like it, that's fine, but that's not actually something that's expected of you. And when you say, if, when you take it away as an expectation, then you also take away the, the respect and the reward that, that comes with achieving it. Yes, very much so. So when you're looking at how the policy is being handled right now, and there's been a lot of emphasis, obviously, by the president on making America great again and having, you know, better better deals made with China and some of these other countries, how do you think we're doing at the moment? Or what do you think needs to be done to really make life better for the American worker and improve things in a more productive way? Well, you know, I, I think the president accomplished something very important, when, especially when he was running his campaign and how he talked about the problem. Um, I think one thing that really differentiated him from, from both Republicans and Democrats and that explained his success was that he was talking somewhat in these terms. He, was, he wasn't just explaining how he was going to grow the economy or, or what programs he was going to use to spread the wealth. He was talking about work. Right. And about, you know, people's identity and, and what they cared about in terms of being able to work. Um, and, and so that, I think, has been a very positive development. Um, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of the actual policies that, that the White House tries to, has tried to pursue have necessarily um, pushed us very far in that direction. I think if we really want to make progress, um, then we have to step back and say, okay, you know, why is our economy having these outcomes for workers that we don't like? And what would we change if we wanted the economy to have better outcomes? Yes. And so, right. you know, one thing that we just talked about is education. Um, you know, if we're especially concerned about outcomes for the half of Americans who aren't getting a college degree, uh, that should be where our focus is. And, and I know that's, you know, that's something that the White House has started to, to talk about and the president has talked about. But certainly, we have a lot more work to do there if, if we're actually going to make changes. Um, you know, I think another area that, that hasn't received much attention, and, and I hope will, is organized labor mm. um, or unions. You know, unions are something that conservatives generally don't like and, and have sort of cheered on the demise of, of these unions, the, the kind that were set up back during the Great Depression. Yes. And that's fine. Those unions don't work well at this point. But the idea of organized labor, the idea that workers should be able to organize, to work for each other's benefit, to collaborate and negotiate with employers, um, 
that's good. We, we should want that both for their sake as workers and for the sake of, of a healthy society and healthy communities. And so that's another area where I think conservatives in particular have a huge opportunity to, to draw that line and say, we don't like the kinds of unions that have been creating a lot of problems in the past, uh, but we want to find a way to make organized labor work. And, and so we want actually to achieve reform there. And then I think that would make a big difference. Well, and if, as you've seen, the certain industries, you know, lag a little bit more as different industries rise. You know, the coal industry has had its issues and so forth, for example, or the car industries. You look at what's going on, and, and always we're going to have to look as a country to the issue of creating new businesses and founding mm-hmm. new businesses. This is where the questions about taxes and regulations comes into play and frustrates so many Americans. Do you see some reforms that would be be necessary along those lines to encourage people to, you know, start their own businesses and not have so many loopholes to get through that they actually would be more inclined to do it than maybe they are now, given what it would cost them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think especially when you when you talk about the, the regulation side of things, you know, we have two kinds of regulation that, that we really need to, to focus on fixing. One is, as you just described, just sort of the amount of red tape. I mean, whether it's the licenses that individuals need just to go practice a lot of different types of work, to all of the things you have to do if you want to open up your own business. Um, we have to make that much easier to do. And, and then the other thing we have to do is look sort of at some of our biggest regulations on, on things like the environment, where I think everyone on all sides cares about the environment and, and wants to have the best environmental quality we can. But we also have to ask at what price. You know, every time you kind of twist the dial a little bit further to try to get things a little bit cleaner, um, you also raise costs a little bit more and make it a little bit harder to especially do the kind of big industrial projects and and infrastructure and natural resources, the kind of things that a lot of cases are are their best jobs, especially for for blue-collar workers. Um, and, And so I think we have to take a hard look at that and say, you know, gosh, in the 1970s, we had real environmental problems and, and a booming industrial economy. And so we made a choice to start to start tightening things. And that, that was appropriate at that point. But right now, we've made so much environmental quality and have so many struggles in our industrial economy. You know, we don't need to go backward, but maybe let's stop tightening the ratchet. Maybe let's say at this moment, um, we would love to get as much investment in new factories, in new infrastructure, the more the better, even if, even if that's not the best thing for the environment at every moment. And so I think that's another trade-off that we have to be ready to grapple with, that you know, it's not free, it, it, it has costs too, but is the right thing to do if we're really focused on, on what workers need. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, because certainly what you just said is right, that we all want to have a clean environment, but when the regulations become so oppressive that they're really stymieing growth and stymieing the labor force, then, yeah, it's time to maybe think a little bit differently. Well, the name of the book is The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Our guest, Oren Cass, has really done a great job outlining all of these good ideas for us, and you can check out the book. Thank you so much, Oren. It was wonderful to have you with us. Appreciate it so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. All right. You take care. Thanks a lot for being with us. And we'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today.